Here's what we want to do today in the Word of God. I, it says in there I'm going to preach on John 11. We'll, we'll wait on that just one week. It's just been a super busy week as I was with that missionary, that missionary team. There's probably 20 of us or so in Canada caring for that ministry. And of course, where you end up doing stuff like that, you end up doing Bible conferences. And we had a Bible conference there in Calgary. And, and uh, the theme of it was the fear of God. So I thought that message that I brought to that uh, Bible conference, I would bring to you this morning on the fear of God, and then we'll pick up John and the Gospel of John next week. So here, the fear of God, and maybe it's a good reminder for us today on the fear of God. What do you hear about the fear of God? I think you would agree with me that we are a nation seemingly without the fear of God, But worse than the nation without the fear of God is many believers, maybe even sometimes so-called believers, who live without the fear of God. Albert Martin, a pastor, has written a recent book, and it's called The Forgotten Fear. And here's what Albert Martin said. He said, at every point in my Christian life, from the moment I breathe my first breath as a new creature in Christ, To the moment when I take my last breath, the entire time of my sojourning, all of this, he said, is to be marked by the fear of God. End of quotes. I'm asking you this morning, I'm asking my own heart as I prepared for this, do you, do I fear God? I mean, the fear of God for some of you, as you've grown up in the life of the church, was once a very common subject among believers. But today, the language of fear has been greatly diminished, if not misplaced, altogether. I mean, this is a concern today in our pragmatic age that we have abandoned any sense of the fear of God. And I would say to you, especially, I think, in the life of the church. In fact, particularly, the absence or the lack of the fear of God is directly seen in preaching, in preaching. And what I want to do is just take a moment with you to read a series of quotes that have come off websites or blogs or magazines that illustrate that point. I won't belabor, I'll be brief here, but they are descriptions of preaching, And these are not things that I'm kind of ad-libbing up here. These are quotes, all of them. Here's what one said. There's no fire and brimstone here. No Bible thumping. Just practical, witty messages. Services have an informal feeling. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. This article said the goal is to make them feel welcome and not drive them away. And certainly, I hope if you're a visitor today, I want you to feel welcome. I I would say, I I, I don't want to drive you away. But you can't believe how many people will compromise to make that happen. Here's another one. The pastor, as most pastors, the article said, his answer is God. But he slips him in at the end, and even then he doesn't get heavy 
no ranting, no raving, no fire, no brimstone. He doesn't even use the H word. Call it light gospel. It has the same salvation as old time religion, but with a third less guilt. I think that's the the thought today. I mean, whatever you do, if you come in, we don't want to make anybody convicted. Another article said the sermons, they all kind of have the same flavor, don't they? They're relevant, they're upbeat, and best of all, they're short. (laughs) It says you won't hear a lot of preaching about sin and damnation and hellfire. Preaching is sophisticated, friendly talk. So it goes. Another one said, it's a salvationist message, but the idea is not so much being saved from the fire of hell, it's being saved from meaninglessness in this life. It's more of a soft sell. I mean, this is what is out there, beloved. Last one, and I could have kept going, I'll spare you. The idea, here's this article, the pastor says, is to get people through the front doors then disprove the stereotype of the sweating, loosened necktie. I don't even have a tie on. Loosened necktie, Bible-thumping preacher who yells and screams about burning in hell for eternity. And when you put it all together, preaching, therefore, is to be clever. It's to be informal. It's to be positive. It's to be brief. It's to be friendly. Never let them see you sweat and never, never use the H word. The Wall Street Journal described one church's bid, and we're not going to do this, to perk up their attendance on Sunday services. And, and, and I'm reading this. This is really true. It's a pretty known church. The church, quote, staged a wrestling match featuring church employees. To train for the event, 10 employees got lessons from Tugboat Taylor, who's a former professional wrestler, in pulling hair, kicking shins, and tossing bodies around without doing any real harm, is what it said in the Wall Street Journal. I'm just, no, we're, Dom and I are not going to do that. I just, but can you imagine if Martin Lloyd-Jones heard that back in the previous century, or Tozer? I mean, the language of God has been diminished, if not misplaced altogether. You say, on the fear of God, what are we to do? Well, here's our time for communion. I want you to remember the fear of God. And I'm not trying to make you afraid this morning. I'm not trying to scare you. But it is a biblical truth, is it not? Over a hundred references to the fear of God. Over a hundred. And I, and I think maybe as we go, maybe we'll try to recognize and even classify how does the fear of God come in place alongside the love of God? Where does the grace of God fit alongside the fear of God? But as Lewis said, C.S., in the Chronicles of Narnia, he said, God is good, but he is not safe. And I think what he meant by that is he's good, but he's not safe. And as you follow him, we follow him in obedience. And to do that, depending on our time, I want to take you just to one passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 5. Can you turn there? One Scripture 
in Acts chapter 5, and then I will take you to four practical reminders of the fear of God, and then we'll partake of communion. But maybe it's appropriate that I drop this message in here as we build the new building, as people come. I have no idea what that will look like. I have no idea if we open that door, what that will necessarily mean, but you know we're never going to change what we're doing. You, you know that we're just going to keep doing what we've been doing to preach the Word of God. And as much as we want to be attractive to people, yes. As much as we want to love people when they come in, yes. We also want to make sure that we're continuing with the New Testament so that we're modeling and living out the truths that are here. So why not take us into Acts chapter 5? But if you can, would you just back up just a little bit? Look at chapter 4. Let me set the context for you. It says, Now the full number of those who had believed were of one heart and one soul. And not, it says, no one said, or No one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common, and there was great power with the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all and there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought them uh, the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed. Each has had need and then Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There you have the background. Amazing things were happening and extraordinary miracles were happening. And beyond the miracles, thousands of people had given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the apostle Peter as the Holy Spirit descended upon them and filled them with the Spirit. And and there was a, a miraculous movement and a powerful movement. And this movement called the church was growing. And it was growing to such an effect that people were bringing the proceeds of the sale and they were twice in that context, laying them at the apostles' feet. But then you remember chapter 5. Look, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Verse 2, and with the wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, when you first glance at that, it doesn't look that anything is wrong. But as, you, as we'll continue in the text, you will see that there is something wrong. It says there in the text that he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Now, beloved, you know and I know that this is not sin in and of itself. The issue here is not keeping back part of the proceeds, but rather publicly stating that they were giving all of it, and then what they did is withhold or withheld what they stated. And truly, as you're going to see, Ananias and Sapphira were filled with deceit. Chapter 4 helps us. Properties were sold. It was laid at the feet. Property was sold. It was laid at the feet. They sold something, put it at the apostles' feet, but the text and the implication of the text 
is they kept some of it back. And beloved, this becomes the New Testament, an example of what Achan did in the Old Testament. And both of these wicked deeds brought sin into the camp. And rather than trying to be popular and rather trying to evade the issue and rather than not trying to confront sin, Peter confronts sin. Look at verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now you'll note there, he lied to the Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. He said, while it remain unsold, here's what's clear. Did it not remain your own? In other words, nobody told you to sell that piece. And while it was unsold, wasn't it yours? And the answer would obviously be yes. He was the owner of it. Look on verse 4. And after, was it, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? And the answer would be yes. He sold the piece, but it's still under his disposal to do what he want, whether he wanted to give all of it, whether he wanted to give part of it, or whether he didn't want to give any of it. So then Peter says, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? To God. Now you notice that there's a great section there just within the Trinity. He first lied to the Holy Spirit, but then in the same verse, you, why have you contrived excuse me, this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, to God. God is God and the Holy Spirit is God. They're equally used and interchanged right there. And so he confronted him. He confronted him for promising one thing and delivering another. You say, well, what happened? Now look at verse 5. I think you know. It says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Wow. Can you imagine that? As Peter confronted him, in this case, he just fell down and took his last breath. You say, well, what was, what was the response? Look at verse 5 of the church. And great, what? Fear came upon all who heard of it. Great fear. I mean, the, the, the thing I would at least say to you is this. This is not a user-friendly church, is it? I think God's more committed to holiness, right, than he is to just happiness in this case. And so fear came. Say, well, what took place? Look at verse 6. The young men, uh, whoever they were, maybe a, 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 just a group of guys, they rose, they wrapped them up, they carried them out, and it says they what? They buried him. That's Jewish custom. Usually the day of someone's death, they put them instantly in the grave. They came in, picked him up, carried him out, and went someplace, and they buried him. Now you ask, does God always punish sin this way? And the answer is obviously not. But like Nadab, and like Abihu, and like Korah, and like Herod, and like Achan, and others in the scripture, Ananias was immediately judged for his sin, and he paid for it with his life. God sovereignly chose him to strike him dead. The truth is, beloved, is that God could judge every sin in this way. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, we know is death. 
And it is only because of the Lord's infinite mercy that we are not all consumed. Amen? I mean, even today, he has mercy upon us. But in this case, in this place, under his sovereign plan, he struck him down. Sometimes God does judge sin with, <clears throat> excuse me, physical death. Remember when Paul said in Corinthians that they were defiling the Lord's table, and he said, he who eats and drinks, uh, eats and drinks judgment to himself. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick. And then he used that phrase, and a number of you, what? Sleep. It actually says in the ESV, a number have died, but in the NASB, it says they have slept. Sleep refers there to physical death. God judged those irreverent Corinthians by making them physically ill and some died. So exit Ananias, enter Sapphira. Look at the text in verse 7. After about an interval of three hours, his wife came in. Maybe she was out about in the, the town of Jerusalem at the local bazaar, not knowing, it says, what happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for, for, for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And then you'll note what happened. It goes on in verse 9. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together? Interesting. To test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. What happened? Verse 10, again, when the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. What a picture there. I mean, God, beloved, you know this. He is serious in the face of sin. He is not interested in being popular. He's not interested in being user-friendly. Our God wants holiness, doesn't he? He wants holiness out of our church corporately. He wants holiness out of our life individually. You say, well, what happened after she died? Well, it's in the text. Look, verse 11, second time. And great, what? Fear came upon the whole church and upon all. In other words, it went beyond the church who heard of these things. I mean, maybe people in the community were saying, don't go to that church, they'll kill you. I mean, that church doesn't mess around. Is that said anymore? Church is still serious about sin? Or do we just overlook so much? Peter didn't. Peter confronted them both. MacArthur, in his book, Ashamed of the Gospel, said this, and I think appropriately. He said the contemporary, user-friendly movement aims just for the opposite of what took place in this. He said, rather than arousing the fear of God, it attempts to portray him as fun, jovial, easygoing, lenient, and even permissive. He said, haughty sinners who ought to approach God in terror are emboldened to presume on his grace and then he said, this is as wrong as preaching rank heresy, end of quote. What a statement. You say, well, Scott, if we start dealing with sin like this, 
it's going to empty the church. It's going to empty the church of what we have. Scott, if you keep preaching like this, even today, uh, that's not going to be easy. Well, I, I just want you to know the Bible says different than that thought. You say it does? Yeah, look at the text in verse 14. It's hard to believe, but it's in the Bible. And more than ever, believers were what? Added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. They were added to the number because there's something pure in a pure church. There's an attractiveness to it. Now, you don't do that to add to the numbers that that's the purpose. But I am telling you that far from emptying the church, it says that the Lord was adding to their number. Amazing. Amazing. And so more and more happened, and the church grew, and it purified. And you say, well, Scott, tell me a little bit more about the fear of God. What is it? Kind of unusual that I open with the illustration, but... What is it? Well, let's talk about that just for a second. First, let me give you a definition of the fear of God. What is the fear of God? And I want to make some distinctions for you, or it can be a little dangerous. In fact, when Luther struggled with that, he made a distinction. And in many ways, maybe you've heard Luther's characteristics of the fear of God, and I think they're helpful. Luther distinguished between what he called servile fear, okay, and what he called filial fear, okay? The servile fear is the kind of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber has from his tormentor, if you will, the jailer, the executioner. It's the kind, Luther said, dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by a clear and a present danger that is, rip, that is represented by another person. Or maybe the kind of fear that a slave would have had and felt at the hands of a very malicious master who would use a whip to torment someone. That, of course, is just the abject servile fear. But he distinguished that from a filial fear where he was drawing in that point that word from the Latin concept which we get the idea of family from. He said it refers to the fear that a child has uh, for his father. In this regard, Luther is thinking of a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father and his mother and who dearly wants to please them. He has a fear of anxiety of offending the one he loves, not because he's afraid of torture or even punishment, but rather because he's afraid of displeasing the one who in that child's world is the source of security and love. And so there's where he he made that distinction. And I think even that is lacking in contemporary evangelical Christianity. I mean, it's very easy to get flippant. It's very easy, if you will, to get cavalier with God as if we had a casual relationship with the Father. We know, I know, that we're invited to call him Abba Father, and we have personal intimacy promised to us, but we're still not to be flippant with God. We always are to maintain a healthy respect for him. You say, well, Scott, what would you say about Ananias and Sapphira? Where did they go? Did they go to hell? Did they go to heaven? 
And my answer is, I don't know. Maybe they went to heaven. I mean, maybe you've never asked that question. I was trying to think about it, but maybe they did. Maybe they sinned here, as all of us could sin. But what is the fear of God? Well, let me just say there's two characteristics of the fear of God, and we just touched on them. But there is first a sense of terror standing in and before a holy God. Do you not think that Isaiah the prophet in his vision of the Lord when the glory of God began to fill the temple and the threshold of the temple began to shake and God began to reveal himself in glory and then Isaiah's own sin was laid bare before God's consuming holiness that he felt something of terror? Oh, I I think he did. The writer of Hebrews says and reminds us that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a what? Of a living God. But secondly, there's a fear of God evidenced in a profound love and reverence for God's person. And, And this is the part that we usually understand. In other words, the ideal of the fear of God is awe. It's reverence, if you will. It's his person. In fact, the fear of God is usually linked in Scripture to many of his attributes. And when you behold God's person, you see how attractive God is and you desire to follow him and you long for his presence. You long for his majesty. Maybe a couple helpful comments. Paul Tripp said, speaking of one who has a fear of God, It says this, he has a single motivation in his life so as to please the Lord. He does not live for his own pleasure or for the pleasures of others. He does not live for what he can possess. He does what he does because God is and has spoken and this is his sole guidance system for his existence. In other words, he just, he wants to please God. He does what he does not because someone is watching or out of fear of consequences, but ultimately because of a deep, worshipful love and reverence for God. The thought to this type of believer of knowingly or even purposefully disobeying him is unthinkable. So that's a little bit of what the fear of God is. Uh, John Brown, this is my favorite. Maybe you've heard me say this before. He, he defined it, John Brown was a Puritan. He said, God's favor is the greatest of all blessing, and his disfavor is the greatest of all evil. In other words, as a believer that lives in the fear of God, you want his favor upon you as the greatest of all blessings, and his disfavor on you is the greatest of all evils. And then someone might have penned this word, his smile is to be our greatest delight and his frown, our greatest distress. So that's something of that fear that we've just talked about. But mostly for the believer, it's awe, it's reverence, it's wonder for who he is. In fact, the Puritans used to say that if you were really living in the fear of God, you would practice the presence of Christ. In other words, when you and I are walking in the fear of God, We're practicing the presence of God in Christ as though they're walking right with us. So that's a little bit of a definition. But secondly, there's a defense of the fear of God, maybe a defense 
and a blessing for the fear of God. And I just highlight a couple for you. You probably can't get all of these. Don't. There's over a hundred references. But Deuteronomy said, Israel, what does the Lord God your what does the, the Lord your God require of you? And then it says this in 10:12, but to fear the Lord your God. So if you're wondering and saying, hey, this is not really a relation of fear, it says all over the scriptures in old and new to fear God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart. In fact, often the ideal of fearing the Lord is linked to service for God. But he says in 10.12, fear the Lord your God. In fact, it says in Ecclesiastes, the writer said in 3.14, you don't have to turn there. He says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. It says there in 3.14, for God has so worked that men should fear him. You say, in what way? Out of awe, out of wonder of who he is, out of respect. In fact, it says in Ecclesiastes 8, although a sinner does evil a hundred times in many and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. We, there's a defense for the fear of God all over the scripture. It says in 8.13 of Ecclesiastes, it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. When you fear God, you have a blessing on your life. It says this in, in Proverbs 25, 14, and this is from the NASB. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. In other words, there's a secret, there's a blessing for those who fear him. In fact, it says in Psalm 147, verse 11, that the Lord favors those who fear him. It's all over the scripture to defend it. Psalm 31, 19, how great is your goodness for which you have stored up, stored up for those who fear you. And there's more, but there's a defense. There's a definition, there's a defense. Thirdly, the fear of God is a duty to be obeyed. The fear of God is a duty to be obeyed. Would you take your Bible and turn in it to the book of Ecclesiastes for a moment? Let me just show you this. It is a duty to be obeyed. All through the the book of Ecclesiastes, you see these thoughts, but I'm taking you to one in particular. And I think you're well aware of this if you've been in Christ. If not, see it anew for the first time. Remember when I think it's Solomon. We, we think that's who the author is. It says in 1213, it says the end of the matter. It says the end of the matter, all has been heard. Do you remember this? Fear God and what? Keep his commandments. For this, the scripture says, is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. And obviously, there's some distinction there. But let me explain this to you if you're wanting to try to get this tangible, okay? Keeping his commands is what it means to fear God, okay? Fear God, keep his commands. Obedience, beloved, is the explanation of what the fear of God is, 
for this is the whole duty of man. You keep his commandments. You fear God, you keep his commandments. You keep his commandments and it will reveal the, the fear of God. I think I've shared with you that story one time just to give you maybe an illustration here of that man who was a friend of mine many, many years ago. And uh, I saw him one day and his, just his face was crestfallen and he, there was no joy in his life. There was no victory in his life. And he, he, he just, he looked awful. You know, when you know a friend and, and, he, and he said, he came up and so we talked. He, he said, I, I've blown it, Scott. I said, well, what did you do? He goes, I've blown it. I, I said, you don't have to reveal that if you don't want to. But he just kept talking. He said, you know those places on the freeway where there's billboards? And, and I knew what he was talking, you know, and I don't want to preserve the pulpit. But it was just a, a den of iniquity, you understand. It was a place of ill repute. And it was a place that no... God-fearing man would want to go in. Well, he said, you know, Scott, I just got to tell you. He goes, as I was driving along that highway, I pulled my car over. And I might have shared this with you before, but I'm illustrating. And I said, well, you pulled your car over. And then what happened? He said, then I got out of my car. And then I said, did you go into that place? He said, yeah, I, I went into that place. And, and so we, we just, we begin to talk and begin to work through repentance with him and Know, know him, know his wife, know all of his kids. And, and maybe just on the backside of it, I just said, hey, I just got to ask you kind of a superficial, practical question. He goes, what is it? I said, you know, those places got cameras all over. This guy's a known guy in the community. I said, they got cameras all over for legal reasons. And I said, it's not too far from where we live. I said, do you ever have any sense, this is a secondary fear, that someone would see you? Someone would catch you? I mean, that's totally an external thing for me to say. I, I said, do you have any thought that you're seen? And I just, this is what he told me. He says, well, I have a way to overcome that. I said, how is that? He says, I put a hat on. That's what he told me. I said, really? This is kind of sad, right? I said, you put a hat on. And they said, and I put a pair of sunglasses on. And, and I said, so you, you put a hat on, you put a pair of sunglasses in so that if the cameras aren't there or people might know who you are and you go in. And obviously my heart was broke for him. But beloved, do we reduce sin to that as though almighty God didn't see his every step? as though Almighty God didn't know exactly what he did, as though Almighty God in Psalm 139 says, I know when you rise up, I know when you lie down, I know when you sit by the way. He says, I know the words you speak, I know the words you speak before there's a word on my tongue. And in some way and in some measure, this guy was living as though God didn't see anything that he did. And listen, I don't want to talk about him. Maybe we need to talk about ourselves. You know, you think that sometimes nobody ever sees you or your wife never sees you or so whoever never sees you. Do you ever realize that we live our whole life in the sight of a holy 
an all-powerful, majestic God who sees every single thing that we do? I, I mean, it, it'll stop up the way you live. That's why Sharnock said, the Puritan, he said that in every sin, there is a form of atheism. Acting as though God does not exist and carrying on as though he does not see. You know, the other thing is when you get into a situation like that, you become a perpetual liar. Your life becomes so difficult because you have to lie to everybody and everything, have multiple cell phones, and you're just down a path. And I, but my point here is that the fear of God is a duty to be obeyed. Fear God and keep his commandments. Listen, when I'm, when you're walking in the presence of Christ, it will change the way we live. It will change the way we act when we know that his eye is upon us. But he tells us there, fear God and keep his commandments. And maybe just a fourth one um, in number four, and we'll finish here and go to the Lord's table. It's a doctrine to be remembered, this fear of God. So there's a definition, there's a defense, there's a duty. And fourth, there's a doctrine to be remembered. Look, it's in Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. It says there, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Look at it again, and you know, it's the scripture. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good and evil. Now, this is why it's a doctrine to be remembered. He's gonna bring every act to judgment. Let me explain this. It says that God's gonna judge both in Ecclesiastes 3.17, he's going to judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. And this is the testimony of Scripture. You can email if you need these Scriptures. Romans 2.6, he will render to each man, each man, according to his works. Romans 2.16, he judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, he not only knows the acts, he knows the secrets. Romans 14.12, it tells this to us, each of us will give an account of himself to God. He said, whoa, 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 hey, Pastor. What are, you, what are you talking about? What are, you, what are you talking about? Now, we don't talk enough about this, just like we don't talk enough about the fear of God. We don't talk about standing before the Lord and giving an account. Now, I want to make a distinction here for you so you don't misunderstand. There's two judgments, right? There's a judgment for unbelievers. Imagine this. They will stand before the great white, what? Throne judgment. Seven billion people who want zero accountability. They suck creationism out of the public school, okay? They do whatever they want with abortion. I'm telling you, seven billion people, all of us are going to stand before the Lord. The unbeliever will stand before the great white throne judgment. And here's what John said. He said, I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, frightening. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And it said the dead were judged by what was written in the books. And here's what's frightening. According to what they had done. The unbeliever goes, stands before God. He doesn't just go into nothingness. He stands before holy God, ready to be fit for a new body, to go into a place of eternal destruction. And the books were opened, and I take that literally, and there were things 
written in those books according to what they had done. Go share that with someone today in love. I'm not trying to be like a cantankerous here. Does it make sense a little bit when Jesus said in Matthew 10, do not fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul? He said, rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and what? Body in hell. In fact, here's a verse for young people. Look back one chapter in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes 9. It says there, rejoice. I remember when I first read this, I was like, what? Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Wow, really? Like, do whatever you want. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into what? Judgment. He's going he's to judge you. But there's a second phase, and I, I want to be clear here. You say there's a judgment for believers, and the answer is yes. We, we call that the Bema Seat Judgment. You say, ah, wait a minute, Pastor. You're losing me here. <laughs> I thought there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's right. There's no condemnation. When you came to Christ, Jesus Christ paid for all your sins, past, present, and even what? Future. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ. Christ has already taken your judgment. Christ has already taken your sin. Your sin has been paid in full on the cross by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to come to communion, and we ought to rejoice in that. However, you will stand before the Lord and give an account of your stewardship and my stewardship before Almighty God. You say, well, how does that work? Well, just let me show you. Second Corinthians real quick, okay? Second Corinthians, I, I just... And this is where a healthy sense of, of this, a healthy sense of accountability... Not, not a wrong sense. I don't want you to go away. If you're a believer, you understand. He took your sin. We preach that every week. But you will give an account of your life, grandmothers. Singles, you will give an account of your life. Pastors, I'll give an account for my life and the others. But this is the text in, in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For, he says there, we must all appear before the what? Judgment seat of Christ. The Greek word is bima. So we call it the bima seat of Christ. Why? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, let me make it super clear. This is a judgment of rewards according to the stewardship that he's dispensed to you at salvation. Corinthians, you remember, talks about wood, hay, or straw, silver, gold, precious stones. The fire's going to reveal it. And what's left is what we will present back to Christ when we get into glory. But we'll all stand before the Lord. I think that is why Solomon said in 12.1 of Ecclesiastes, remember your creator in the days of your youth because God's going to bring every act into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. So you say, well, Scott, what does that mean? Well, it just means that we ought to walk in the fear of God. It ought to mean, it ought to walk. In other words, you're not just going to say, hey, I walk the aisle and you're not. I'm being facetious. I prayed the prayer. I signed on the dotted line. My grandparents are Christians. My parents are Christians. And then you just take 
like, I don't know, you just, you know, you hear, here's over on the computer, you just push cruise control and you just ride into heaven. Oh, listen, you've been given a spiritual gift. Some were given 10, some were given five, some were given one. The one who had 10 went out and doubled it, or is it five, so forth, two, one. One that went out in 10, ten he made, he doubled his, his investment. The one who went at five, when the master came back, he doubled his investment. And then he came to the one who had one talent. And the guy said, I didn't know what to do. I thought you were a cruel taskmaster, so I went and hid it. And remember, Jesus said, you should have at least put it in the bank so that when I came back, I got interest. And so we're going to give an account for our life. And uh, listen, beloved, you say, well, Scott, um, wh- what do I do with this? I mean, it could, uh, it could be that you're convicted um, today and, and you say, Scott, do you ever get convicted? Do, do you ever feel like uh, you're not who you need to be? Every week. Probably every day in more ways than I know. I say, Pastor, do you fall? Yes, I fall all the time. Pastor, do you have to confess your sin? Yes, all the time. So listen, as we go into the Lord's table, it could be that the Lord's allowed something to come up and, and you're saved, you know that. You're secure, you know that. But you got a blockage between you and the Lord and you say, what do I do? You pray this in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to the steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my what? My transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Remember when David prayed there, he said, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before who? Before me. And then he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your what? Sight. And then he said, I was brought forth in iniquity. He said in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Listen, if you've sinned, then come to him. That's why we have the Lord's table here. You say, well, Scott, do you live your life in the fear of the Lord? I, I seek to. I seek to practice the presence of Christ. But let me just say this. You say, what's the motivation for the fear of God. I would say this. It's the mercies of God. He, he's given you such profound mercies. Romans 12, 1. That, that his smile is your greatest delight. That his frown is your greatest distress. And you want to live your life in such a way. That because of what God Almighty has done for you. And because of the great mercies that have been extended to you. You want to please God in all of your life. So I'm not telling you to walk around like this. I'm telling you to walk around, be in awe, be lost in wonder at what almighty God has done for you. Amen? And then let's practice the presence of Christ together.